What were the top stories of the first half? Which players were the values, surprises, and disappointments? I'll ask Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist of Baseball HQ, and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire in a first-half roundtable discussion next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 12th. It's show number 31 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday special edition for you. We'll have our first half roundtable with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at Baseball HQ, and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. We'll be discussing the first half's biggest stories in baseball and fantasy baseball, the most and least valuable players, the biggest surprises and disappointments, and their boons and banes for the second half. Since it was the break and not much happened, we'll do some load management with our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson have the week off and they'll be raring to go next week when the trades might start falling. We will have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Philadelphia third baseman Alec Bohm. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at two weekend marquee matchups in a World Series rematch in Boston. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about players who aren't widely owned, but maybe should be, and who are widely owned, but probably shouldn't. It's another Big Friday special edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The second half is underway. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday special edition, it's part one of our first half roundtable discussion with Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Happy All-Star break, Patrick. It has been a happy All-Star break. I enjoyed the home run derby in particular, as weird as it was that the guy who hit 90 home runs somehow managed not to win. Uh, Todd, how are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing well too, folks. How are you guys doing? Everything's all right. Everything's all right. Excellent. Uh, it was an interesting first half, plenty to talk about. Uh, let's start off with what you guys think was the biggest story in real baseball for the first half. Uh, uh, I'm very curious about that. Ray, why don't you get us rolling? Uh, it's got to be the baseball, right? Uh, the home run explosion and the you know underlying subplot of MLB claiming they didn't do anything and outside forces demonstrating that you know, whether or not it was intentional, something was done, and then MLB coming around and saying, oh, yeah, maybe, but, you know, it wasn't intentional, blah, 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 Justin Verlander mouthing off at the All-Star game. And it's been sort of a running plot, you know, obviously it's not the first year that this has been an issue, but it's been the biggest, and I think it's been the most out in the open, which is kind of fascinating to me. Is there any chance that Major League Baseball changes the ball back? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I think one is that, um, Manfred this week said that if and when they were to make another change to the ball at this point, that they would do it openly and transparently, which I think is good news for those of us who don't like to be surprised by these things, who like, you know, like Todd and I, who do projections and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm, you know, of course, there's the issue if you take him at his word about that. And of yeah. course, then the, re- the corollary to that is he can say that, but that also 
implies that they have the capability to make those changes and achieve the desired result. And I think the, you know, if they're representing that the changes to the ball have been somewhat haphazard or unintentional, I don't know that I have the confidence that they can fix them a intentionally and b quickly. So I certainly don't expect to see any kind of major change in the remaining of this remainder of this season. So the balls will continue to fly. Uh, Todd, what are, what's your big story? My well, it's uh, it's it's the ball, but it's it Ray touched on it a lot. It's it's more so the transparency that MLB is having with the balls, and it sounds like we're going to know in the future exactly what we're dealing with, and it would be it because they'll you know there'll be people testing it at this point. I, I I think that's it is kind of a help that they're that they're coming right out and saying if they make a change if they make a manufacturing change we're going to know about it now coming from a scientific background and Ray and you guys kind of alluded to it this isn't it's something that has to be tested whatever change they make it's not guaranteed to to do exactly what they want they're going to have to test things so any change is implemented it's going to be slow I don't even I don't even know that they can make the change and have it for the beginning of next season and have them positive that the changes are going to have undue circumstance, undo some things they didn't consider to be happening. So the fact that everything's so upfront about it, I think that's a good thing. I'm not even sure that they need to do anything about it. I know the the, the, the situation now with all the home runs and strikeouts and the whatnot is 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 different. But if if teams know what's going, if teams know this is a scenario. Well, now we know how do we how do we how does pitching attack that? Well, they throw the ball higher up in the zone. Hopefully, umpires start calling higher strikes, and th- that's just kind of the cycle that we're going to be in. So I'm not even sure I want to. I'm not even sure I want them to do anything at this point, because I think part of it, and this is still early too. There's there's fewer blisters. There's potentially fewer arm injuries. Although things like TJS is a buildup. You can't say, well, there's been fewer TGS this year, Tommy John, because, you know, it's been a buildup, so you can't say that. But I, I think that there, there, there are some good good side repercussions of of the new ball that I think we need to consider as well. And if we can just get umpires to call the higher strike, I think that'll be the, the ballast on the other end, and things will be fine. Isn't there a danger, though, that if they encourage the umpires, whether by training them using the uh, – the uh, robo eye uh, stat cast data to to fix the ball in the strike zone and point out to these guys that they're not calling certain ball strikes that should be uh, especially the high strike uh, i don't know don't don't you think that as boring as a high strikeout game is already if they if they start giving them more high strikes there'll be even more strikeouts and even less action on the field uh i don't i don't know i i don't think so. i think there'll be fewer homers and i think once there are fewer homers, then the the idea to hit so many home runs, the the the, the, the counter on the batting part is to big better contact. I think that you know, I th- it's not going to happen overnight, but you know, look, you know, putting it through one of those slow motion time frames. I think we go down in the future, and if even if there are even more strikeouts, the way to con- counter that on the hitters' end is to not have everybody go for home runs and to have a few more contact hitters back in the game. So it, it, we talk about a game of adjustments for for individual players. This is a game of adjustments overall too. I've seen some scuttlebutt guys about whether the surge in home runs means more than the ball is juiced. Is there any suspicion in your mind that steroids are back in the game or perhaps that they never left, Ray? 
I mean, we have no way of knowing, right? But it, the science behind the changes in the ball seem like it explains the drastic the, the, the drastic percentage of what's going on with the home runs. I'm not so sure. And then how do you tease out, um, you know, changes in musculature, players being bigger from players have been getting bigger for years, but the, you know, the launch angle revolution and, uh, you know, that back and forth that you guys were just talking about, I, that doesn't rise to the level of, um, you know, serious suspicion for me at this point, or at least I'm not, you know, as a quote unquote prognosticator, it's not something I'm worried about. Todd? No, I, you know, I, what, what we, we talk about the ball, we talk about the launch angle. What we don't talk about enough is these things go hand in hand. The reason that everybody's now lofting the ball again is because they're getting results. It, you know, and it, they they go hand in hand. So I, you know, they feed into each other. So I don't think it has any, has any, has much to do with steroids. I mean, am I saying that there's you know 750 players in MLB are going to play this weekend? They're perfectly clean. I have no idea. Probably not. But I don't think it's anything like the steroid era, so to speak. I just think that 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 you know you're doing it because it's successful yeah if i lock the ball but it's not you know if the ball's a dead ball what we'd be talking about is all these players lofting the ball and having all this warning track power but that's not what's happening because they're getting the extra five to 15 feet and it's clearing the fences so i think that uh I, i'm not i'm not so much worried about that and for it's weird i don't say weird but they're being they're being so transparent about the ball i'd like to think that they're not being you know clandestine about the uh, the other thing there the the s word well the ball and the the uh, controversy surrounding it and the possibility of steroids and stuff uh, i'm really rooting for what would be a positive baseball story especially in the second half and that is I think, guys, that we have a genuine chance of having a triple crown race in the National League between Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger. At the break, Yelich was first in home runs. He had 31. He was fifth in RBIs, 17 back of Josh Bell, and fourth in batting average, trailing Jeff McNeil by about 20 points. Bellinger was second across the board in all three categories, one behind Yelich in homers, 13 behind Bell in RBIs, and 13 points behind McNeil in the batting average race. Uh, when we first look at it, uh, just glance at the numbers, it seems like uh, a triple crown race forming up would have to depend on Josh Bell slowing his power roll and on McNeil coming back to earth in batting average, which I think is at least somewhat indicated by his um, pretty happy uh, uh, Babbitt. But, and the Dodgers, I think, might start resting Bellinger and other, uh, others of their starters if they have this insurmountable lead. Although if he was in a triple crown race, I can't imagine that they'd sit him because he'd put bums in seats. And uh, I should mention that Freddie Freeman's top 10 in all three, but I don't think he can get there too far back in all three categories. And I know in general it's probably a long shot, but wouldn't it be fun if, uh, if uh, we had a, a triple crown race for the first time in many years? Sign me up for that. Absolutely. That would be fun. Um, yes, with an asterisk. I think it'll be great, great fun, great theater. I just hope it doesn't set us back as far as understanding what categories are more applicable to understanding how good a ball player really is. 
Yeah, I thought about that too. And uh, when you look at the top 10 in some of the more advanced metrics, Bellinger and Yelich could make a triple crown of sabermetric stats as well. I think maybe that would be something that we should play up because it's likelier yes. to be a race than uh, than uh, uh, the standard uh, homers, RBIs, and batting average. Uh, you know, if you could say, look at uh, the the war, uh, F war, B war, and, and uh, you know, uh, OPS or something, OPS plus are all a, a two-man race as well. I think that could be made interesting and, and make people a little more aware of the of the nuances of it because races create interest. I'll just say that. Uh, moving yeah. on, guys, uh, let's go to the most valuable hitter. This is defined however you want to define it. I have my definition, which I'll talk about in a second. But, Todd, uh, what's your definition and who's the most valuable hitter in the first half? Yeah, since we're since we're allowed to make up not make up but explain definitions, we have a couple different categories. I'm just gonna go with the the guy that just straight out performed the best production and hitting, and I don't think there's any surprise that it's Christian Yelich. It was it wasn't even close over Cody Bellinger, and I I did for, to to be upfront, I did my numbers a couple weeks back because I did a piece for RotoWire, so I think mine are. Maybe actually, like, I don't want to say true first half, but closer to the midway point of the season. If you guys did some numbers crunching uh, over the weekend, it may be after, you know, before the break. So a couple players may actually be a little bit different based on that, but that just gives us more names to talk about. But Yelich, I don't think we need to, I mean, Yelich is just otherworldly. He's running, you know, almost close, if not leading the league in NL and steals, which is sort of an under the radar thing. And we keep talking about regression this, regression that. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I see a whole lot of fallback. He's the Yelich continues to hit the ball hard, as I talked about uh, earlier in the season. He 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 hits ground balls harder than some players hit line drives. So is there going to be some give back, give back? Probably. This guy's just special. At the All Star break. Yelich had a $6 value advantage over Bellinger, at least as far as Baseball HQ methods are concerned. But my definition of most value is to take the value and then add the profit, because I want a guy who is not only valuable but profitable. And using that measure, my first half MVP is Cody Bellinger, $43 producer in the first half, which was a $21 profit over the projection. Uh, 43 plus 22, 65, which puts him a few dollars ahead of Christian Yelich and DJ LeMahieu. He's eclipsed his full season home run projection already of 26. He's 80% of the way to topping his RBI and runs projections. And he's 79 points ahead of his projected batting average, 94 points ahead of his projected on base percentage. He's not scorching his projection in stolen bases, but he's on track for his 16 projected. If he continues at this pace, he's going to end up with something like mid-50s home runs, mid-130s RBI and runs, 16 bags, and a batting average around 345. That's not bad for $21. Ray? <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. And really, you know, this, you know, before I even answer the question, I'll just stipulate that Really, there's those two guys and everybody else. And sure, you can put Mike Trout in with those two guys because Mike Trout always lives in that neighborhood. But you know, anybody else who's you know getting mentioned in this discussion is being brought into this discussion from below because it's Yelich, it's Bellinger, it's Trout, and then there's everybody else. But if you want to talk about the profit argument, uh, PD, I can go that route and you know talk about let's talk about Rafael Devers a little bit uh, just because he's hitting 325 with. 16 homers, 60 RBIs, and eight steals. Those numbers pale in comparison to Yelich and Bellinger, but they're pretty good in comparison to everybody else. And people who got Devers got them at a fraction of the cost of Yelich, Trout, or even Bellinger this preseason. So there are some people who are very happy to own Rafi Devers right now. 
I think that's uh, an excellent point, and I don't know exactly where Cody Bellinger went in everybody's draft, so I'm going to guess third round, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, like maybe late second, early yeah, third. Yeah, I think I got him on the 3-4 wheel in a 15-team mix. Yeah, I think he went at the 3-4 wheel in the one uh, draft league that I play in. And we all know Christian Yelich went very high. He's high. I saw him as high as third overall. Bellinger has a two-round advantage over Yelich, but as you said, Devers has a, probably a three-round advantage over Bellinger, so there, there's a, a number of ways we can go here. Let's move on and talk about pitchers, uh, the most valuable pitcher. I'll start here. For me, it has to be Lucas Giolito. A $27 first half was basically all profit. Uh, he wasn't drafted in some leagues. That He went for a dollar in my Tout American League. And he's on pace for more than 230 strikeouts, which would be a massive total in these innings-restricted times. I'm not sure his prorated 22 wins is going to be realistic, given the team context. Although Lucas Giolito does have the advantage of pitching in the American League Central, so he's going to have lots of shots at KC, Detroit, and even Cleveland. We're projecting uh, 18 wins at Baseball HQ by the end of the season with a 363 ERA, 127 whip, worth $14 in aggregate. I think that projection might be a little harsh, actually, but there's no doubt that in the first half, Lucas Giolito was hugely valuable to any teams fortunate or smart enough to have grabbed him for a buck. Ray? Yeah, I have had some comments about Giolito in another section. I'll just uh, I'll hold, I'll hold them for later. Certainly a very reasonable pick here. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go with Hung Jim Rue here just for the absurd numbers he's putting up for the Dodgers, the sub two ERA, the sub one WHIP, and really perhaps the most surprising thing about his first half is the innings total. Just that he's been healthy enough to rack up a full workload and you know and has done it pretty much unblemished all year, you know, 10 wins, 109 innings, 109 innings has been a good season for him in the past. Uh, he, he got that in just over half a season. Uh, the numbers are sterling. He's been, you know, the most, I think the most, one of the most valuable pitchers in baseball. And because of the durability questions, you know, this was a, this was a mid round pick, you know, uh, if you're using the, the profit formula here, I think he's got a bubble at the top of the list, I think. So, Todd, uh, we have Giolito, we have Ryu. Who says you? Yeah, excuse me. Again, going by, because I'll get to maybe maybe mention those names in a bit, I'm going, you know, strictly by who, you know, production earned. And that, to me, was Justin Verlander. But it also gives me the opportunity. I think people realize realize that Verlander's given up homers this year, especially after he came out, was kind of outspoken about the ball over the break, etc. He's given up 26 homers. He's four away from his his career high in a hundred more innings. So the fact that he's giving up homers, all right, he's still one of the the he's the number one pitcher. He's found a way, either you know by hook or by crook, to deal with the ball and still be an effective pitcher. Uh, ERA under three, uh, WHIP under one, and they're both obviously supported by the by his history and the underlying metrics. I just think it's fascinating that he's given up 26 homers in 126 innings, including a ton lately. He's given up, he's surrendered. What is it? It's 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 12 in his last 33 innings. So a lot of the damage has been lately, but he still pitched well over that time. It's like he's given up one more run. Uh, you know, the non-home run. I don't know the exact number, but you know, almost every run has been given up via via a home run. Uh, just not putting guys on base. So, um, you know, it's 
if it was anybody but Verlander, we'd be talking about a re, you know second half. Watch out! Oh, oh we're gonna he's gonna be in trouble. But it's Verlander, so I'm not worried. Interesting thing about Verlander is he's uh, he's quite a, a high flat fly ball pitcher. He gives up a lot of fly balls, not a lot of ground balls, and he plays in a fairly homerific park. So uh, the fact that he's maintaining these uh, extremely good decimals in the face of uh, a lot of external factors that weigh against him, especially the ball, more balls go in the air that used to be warning track, now they're flying out. This is this is a problem for anybody. And his strikeouts are down from last year. He was around 12 per nine innings last year, around 11 this year. Uh, so the performance has been re- really remarkable. Uh, Ray, what do you think of Verlander's complaint? <laughs> if I were a pitcher, I'd be screaming bloody murder too. How could you blame him? I, I, you know, your point about uh, the ballpark context and everything is right, Patrick. In some sense, this is what we thought would happen to Verlander when he went to Houston from Detroit, which obviously contained home runs quite a bit for him. And it's been, you know, it's taken a couple of years to sort of catch up to him. And maybe that, you know, maybe a, uh, you know, be, sure, it's easy for him to say he's a victim of the ball, but, you know, he is also getting a little longer in the tooth and, uh, you know, stuff might be deteriorating just a little bit, or it's a little easier to catch up to that fastball. Or there's also that, um, you know, the old Orleans Chapman argument that uh, I think it was the Red Sox that used to say about Ver- about Chapman and that, that, you know, seeing 101, you know, used to be a novelty, but now you, but now you see it every night and it's easier to catch up to it. And maybe, uh, you know, I'm looking at Verlander's uh, velocity now and he's off, you know, half a mile an hour from last year, nothing all that um, startling. But, you know, 94.6 for an average fastball velocity is by – every definition, you know, pedestrian these days. So, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be surprised to see people catching up and uh, taking them deep every now and a little more often than in the past. Todd, I haven't looked it up, and I don't know if you have either. When we're talking about Verlander, one of the uh, sort of sub-stories that's been going on about the ball is the fact that because of the lack of friction that they can get on the ball and the lower seems there's not as much movement in the pitches. And I wonder, uh, uh, Justin Verlander is giving up 1.8 home runs per nine. That's up 50% from last year, the last few years, actually, at 1.2, partly ballpark related. But is this going to be an issue for all kinds of pitchers that because the ball's not moving enough or as much as they're used to, that they're just more hittable in some way? Well, I think there's, there's that, and well, I'll get back to the second, but I think the other point is, and we've talked about this, and I, I talked about it a bit with Kershaw uh, before the injuries a couple of years ago. There's no shame in striking out anymore. I think when you're up in the box against Verlander, you're just going for the downs. If I'm going to make it out, you know, I'm going to go down swinging or I'm going to hit it over the fence. I think it has to do with mentality as much as of anything. And hitters, they're just going, you know, just softball mentality. Why are you swinging so hard in case I hit the ball? Now, uh, going back to the specific Verlander, one of the, not only is the fastball the the velocity, he has got more spin and it's backspin on his on his four seamer than almost any other pitcher throwing the pitch, and it's interesting because backspin actually reduces movement. It counters gravity, and right. it, it gives it a rising effect. And it's it's sort of hard to explain, but in a batter has got a, he's, he's he's been ingrained to expect a certain amount of drop on fastballs and what happens with Verlander is it's not dropping as much as others so it gives the illusion of rising and I maybe there's something to that is is, is uh their batters are seeing him enough now or 
uh, figuring that the ball isn't going to drop as much, making adjustments. I don't think I don't know. Yeah, the or they just naturally that. get under it a little bit more. And in, in the old days, that let the fly balls, and now the fly balls land on the other side of the fence. Yeah, so I think you know, but but yeah, with Verlander, the he, even with the the seams and the and the slickness of the ball, his backspin is still just you know higher than it. it just it's still fantastic. So it's it is sort of weird and. Um, you know, I should note, you know, people looking up numbers, he has pitched to about a five ERA during that stretch of time, about 33 innings. So he can't continue to give up these home runs. I suspect it's just a little bit of a phase and it, it'll stop and he'll, you know, he'll give up homers for sure, but not at this pace. Even Verlander can't give him up at this 12 and 33 inning pace and keep up. Cy Young material. I think that those will wane a bit, which, you know, as we're getting warmer, the ball, it's, it's supposed to continue to uh, be better for the ball, and home runs in general are supposed to, be, you know, continue going up until late August, early September, which on, on paper, anyway, they're supposed to come back down. We shall see. I hadn't thought about the idea that uh, Verlander's backspin would have been the issue. I was thinking more of kind of horizontal movement uh, that we see uh, with a lot of pitches and especially breaking balls breaking down as well as horizontally. But the the idea of backspin, which I think they call ride, is the uh, is what you're trying to get, which is the, uh, the countering the effect of the normal gravity. And if it's not riding as much as it was in past years, if the ball is dropping at a rate closer to what the hitter expects, he might the hitters might accidentally be making better contact. They're swinging where they thought it should be, and it is there, and it didn't used yeah. to be. Well, his his spin is still fantastic. That that's sort of that's that's the auto, the oddity of it. But it might even be, you know, you, you're talking half a mile an hour. Maybe maybe that is significant, and that is enough that the slightly slower velocity puts the ball closer where the batter thinks it should be, and that's where they're making their contact. One last thing about Justin Verlander. Did you guys see the story about how he's crediting much of his success later in life to getting lots of sleep? He's becomes quite a proselytizer for uh, to his teammates. Got to get that ten hours a night. He's he's talking about. Uh, have you heard about this? Is it catching on anywhere? I I read the Alex Bregman quote about how Bregman didn't believe him, and then he started believing him. He's hitting thirty homers, so uh, ten hours. That that for me that 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 entails a two or three naps, but it's possible. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I feel like it's an interesting qu- question in the aggregate because this is something that you know it has caught on more in other sports. You know, um, Todd, you being a Boston guy, you've probably heard you know Tom Brady's views on this and how he you know tends to you know t- takes naps in closets before the Super Bowl and that sort of thing. And obviously, there's a heck of, heck of a lot going on in the NBA with you know sleep and player rest and you know all under the umbrella of what they call load management over there. But you know the in theory, the longer baseball season, the playing every night, the even more travel they have to go through seems like that, you know, trying to find ways to better get your sleep and, you know, maintain your rest in your body would be even more beneficial to baseball players. But they seem, you know, it, but, but this story is still a little bit of an anomaly and it seems like they're behind the curve a little bit. I know we had one question in our forums the other day asking whether uh, Mookie Betts's you know, somewhat subpar first half is related to uh, him having a new baby who he has said is not sleeping through the night. So, you know, does all this stuff go together? Maybe. But, um, you know, if we talk about what, so, what some, some of the next frontiers are in baseball performance, I, I, I certainly think rest has to be on the list. I remember talking with Justin Mason a few weeks ago on the show, 
and he had been talking with uh, a, a former major league pitcher who said that the worst season he had in his career was when he had a newborn in the house and and his ERA was like two runs lower on the road because it was the only time he was getting a night's sleep especially before a start and uh, to to the point about how teams are looking at this in all the pro sports I remember also seeing a story somewhere about pro football teams and pro basketball teams telling their players to bring their pillows with them when they go on the road so they don't have to use hotel pillows because apparently your own pillow is quite an advantage when it comes to trying to trying to fall asleep and stay asleep i do that a lot when i travel i I strongly recommend that this this can't be that hard to check i mean you go through any site's notes and we know when everybody's on the paternity list and i think as far as i know i'm not an expert i don't have any kids but i think there's only one reason you go on the paternity list so we kind of we kind of know what's going on there, and we can check their numbers right after. But I think we also need to point out. I mean, I think the implication is everybody could use ten hours sleep. Not everybody, you know, has got a paycheck that they're comfortable for life, and 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 has meals cooked for them and travel arranged for them. So uh, it's not so easy to get ten hours sleep for some of us. But for baseball players, it should be, and it's something that, again, we've talked about this in in, uh, in other aspects of professional sports and baseball. The teams should be encouraging their players to do this and making it easy for them to accomplish this and, and making it a, a something that uh, that all the players are focusing on. I think it's a really interesting thing, and I'm curious to see if it catches on in any way. Uh, moving along this Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. We have Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ and Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire talking about the first half and some of the stories in our roundtable. Let's move along. We have a surprise hitter, a positive, pleasant surprise hitter, which is different from most valuable, I think, in that it may be a guy who was pretty valuable and is being even more valuable. I don't know. Whatever you think, but a positive surprise hitter, Ray? I'm going to go with Tim Anderson from the White Sox. You know, He got off to a hot start, and I kind of scoffed at it after he hit, uh, you know, like, 350 in March, April, or whatever it was. Like, oh, that's got to come down. And eh, it's come down, but not that much. I mean, he's hitting over, he's, he's, yeah, he's hitting 317. And this is a guy who, you know, used to live in the 240 range. We knew he had the power and speed, and it was always a batting average penalty that came along with that. And now you erase the batting average penalty and heck, turn it into a positive. And, you know, this is, uh, he's having one heck of a year. Todd, who's been a surprise, pleasant surprise hitter for you? Yeah, I asked a similar question in our tout table, which will, which will be posted on uh, later later on on will be posted on Thursday afternoon actually, and Josh Bell got a lot of love and deservedly so, but according to my numbers, according to my list, and again Bell had a couple homers after I put the numbers together, but Pete Alonso, you know the the home run derby champion, Pete Alonso, uh, surprised me a bit more than Josh Bell. Maybe that's personally because I know that. You're not supposed to judge on a small sample, especially when it's in the Arizona Fall League. But I, we also, well, well, we saw Alonso take Nate Pearson deep on a on a hundred and plus mile on a fastball. But if you get, went to games before that, you also saw him swing and miss a lot. I just I saw too much swing and miss in Alonso's game, and I was skeptical skeptical coming into the season because at the time the Mets had a few different options. Uh, in lieu of Alonso, we just weren't sure what they were going to do. So part of it is my personal surprise, but the numbers bear it out as well. If you take what what he was expected and what he's performed, for me, Pete Alonso is the the biggest positive surprise hitter uh, in, in, either, in either league to this point. I had uh, Pete Alonso on my list as well, and and 
interestingly enough, it was largely because of what I saw at first pitch Arizona. Uh, we got to see him a, a couple of times, and I remember the knock on him when we listened to the scouts in the, in the seminars and stuff was that he was going to be a real liability with the glove. But every mm-hmm. time I saw him playing in first pitch Arizona, he was making a great play. And I know that's anecdotal, and overall he probably is pretty horrible. He's a slow-footed guy and fairly big and awkward. But he looked okay defensively, and I think maybe he showed enough to get onto the uh, active roster of the Mets. And that once he got there, he started swinging. And when he started swinging, he started hitting. And uh, the ball probably helped him a little bit and the lack of movement or the reduced amount of movement. I think Pete Alonso has been a great surprise. Another guy who's a great surprise, mostly because I rostered him by accident in Tout Wars. He was just a sad, desperate necessity, was Hunter Dozier of Kansas City, who's been a very pleasant surprise, uh, played very well and started to reach his potential. But overall, I'm going to go with a shocking resurgence by outfielder Lourdes Gurriel up here in Toronto. Uh, Two weeks into the season, you guys remember, they sent Lourdes Gurriel to the minors. He was hitting 175. He didn't have any home runs. And uh, he was making Devon Travis look like, uh, you know, Robinson Cano in his prime at second base with the glove. So they kicked him off the team. They sent him down to AAA and said, just play left field. And he came back. He's been starting in left field. And since he's returned, get these numbers, 335 batting average, 16 home runs, 30 RBIs, and 34 runs. If you prorate it out, you're talking about a 50 home run season with 100 RBIs and 120 runs. Two things about this surprised me. First, it's just so far I've had any expectation we could possibly have had before the season. We projected 13 homers, 50-ish runs and RBIs, 260 batting average. And second, who comes back after a month in the minors and looks this good? The more typical expectation we have is that he goes down, he makes a few tweaks, and comes back with some relatively modest gains, maybe gets back to what we were expecting. He doesn't usually go from being sub-replacement level to a reasonable facsimile of peak Albert Pujols. So, uh, Ludus Gurriel, surprise! And finally, for this segment, guys, let's talk about uh, the biggest pleasant surprise among pitchers. Todd, uh, why don't you lead us off? Yeah, you guys talked about him and uh, hinted about talking about him more, but I'm going to go with Lucas Giolito. And I know he had some prospect, well, some, he had a good deal, a great deal of prospect pedigree when he was with the Nationals and traded over to the White Sox. But what he did, he reinvented himself as a pitcher. And I've talked about this on, on, on the regular HQ radio in that he, he ditched his two seamer and he started focusing on the four seamer and the change, increased the spin rate on the four seamer, picked up some velocity, dropped the spin rate on the change, which is what you want because you want gravity to to be the prevailing force. So the, the less spin is the better. Just reinvented, uh, changed the repertoire a bit, 
and it's just a completely new picture, completely new picture uh, as far as uh, repertoire and stuff, etc. Just needs to learn control, has, has been getting better and better, better with the command and control. I think this is a new guy. I think we also have to keep in mind that at this, I think today it's called Guaranteed Rate Park. We'll see what it's called tomorrow. The um, the park is not a it's not a it's not a hitter's park. It's a home run park, but it's not a hitter's park. It's a pitcher's park. So a pitcher like Giolito, if you keep the ball in the yard, is going to be successful. Maybe maybe I'm on an island with this, but in my head, it's it's a it's a pitcher's park. I'm a, a, a hitter's park, and I try to avoid White Sox pitchers. That's that's bad. Todd, don't do that. Bad, bad, bad boy. So uh, Giolito, I'm all over him at this point, and you know a, a hat tip to Ryu. But you know, I, I Ray, you probably go through the same thing. Whoever does your Dodgers playing time, you got to. You know, I know you review them. You know, at this point, what do you do? Do you do you say he's not going to get hurt and give him 12 more starts? Do you say he was going to miss eight and he only has four more starts? He's he's one of those difficult projections at this point. And I don't know what you're doing, Ray, but I'm just gonna. I'm, I'm maybe not giving him 12. I'm giving him 10 starts, but I don't think you can penalize him for the full extent of the the health at this point. Yeah, I was going to talk about this later too, but yeah, there's the health, and, and I agree. You can't just suddenly, you know, you can't just project he's going to get hurt. But I do think you have to wonder about the Dodgers giving him a vacation because they want him fresh for October, and they don't need much more from him in the regular season. I'm curious what the Dodgers are going to do. Having been to the World Series twice and having come up short twice, it's going to be a conundrum. Do you rest the players? Or do you keep them sharp? I think they've got a. I think they're going to be playing some head games with themselves in September. And I already think that. You know, I think that part of the reason Alex Cora and the Red Sox beat Dave Roberts and the Dodgers is because Alex Cora out head gamed Roberts in the World Series last year with the with the platoons and the and all that sort of thing. I'm I'm curious. I think the. I think you know we talk about Bellinger. I think he would get maybe another extra day off on a Sunday or something like that. I don't see I don't see a, anything more than that. Nothing to worry about for fantasy. I do think they'll, they'll try to keep him fresh, but the Dodgers kind of do that anyway. So, I don't I don't I'm not concerned if I own Los Angeles Dodgers in head-to-head leagues and the whatnot that I'm going to be losing playing time come September. Now, pitching and they, it's a different story. They always do that. But um, I'm not. I, I think the Dodgers are going to play the. I need to keep the guys sharp. As which would you rather have? Which would, if you're going to go down a third time, you want to have it go down because you kept them sharp or because they were off? I I, I don't know. Guys, uh, when I was thinking about my biggest pleasant surprise pitcher, I looked at my own teams. I've got three teams that I'm running this year, and the most pleasant surprise I've had from any of my personal pitchers, and I think this meets the general criteria, is Brandon Woodruff of Milwaukee. He finished the first half uh, $19.20 at 5 by 5 He's got 10 wins, 367 ERA, 114 whip, and 126 strikeouts in 108 innings, and that's not too shabby for a guy that we projected as replacement value at best with an ERA around 4, a whip around 130, and less than a strikeout per inning. And importantly, I think, as a pleasant surprise, he's full value for those numbers. He's got strikeouts and ground balls from 56% of the batters he's faced this year, just 6% walks, and I think he even has room to improve. His ground ball was up in June. His baseball HQ expected ERA is 330, and the other ERA estimators are pretty much in line, FIP and XFIP and Sierra and uh, those kind of things. FIP is actually under three. So uh, I think Brandon Woodruff's Big first half, not only a pleasant surprise, but a sustainable surprise, and that's the kind of guy I like to have on my teams. Uh, Ray, who's your pleasant surprise pitcher? 
Uh, no new names here. Um, you guys hit on both of the ones I wanted to talk about. Uh, Woodruff first. I, I, I totally agree with your take. He's been terrific. I'm a little less optimistic about the second half just because I'm worried about him uh, you know, wearing down on, uh, from a workload perspective after being a reliever last year. Um, but I love him going forward. I love him for 2020. I've already sort of seen enough. I don't, I don't care what happens in the second half. I'm buying him for next year. I'm just a little nervous about him wearing down uh, down the stretch here. Uh, back to Giolito, who was really my pick in this, this category. You know, There's just so much to talk about there. Two things we haven't touched on that really – um, resonate with me is one back you know when he had the big prospect pedigree with you know with Washington there was a lot of talk about how before Washington traded him that they screwed him up and they messed with his mechanics and his pitch mix and all of that those things and I was optimistic that the White Sox would fix that I really never thought it would take this long uh, so it's just a reminder that you know pro- prospect pedigree should have a long shelf life and every we we all knew that Giolito had you know good stuff and it was just a question of you know essentially learning how to use it. The the other point there that strikes me, sort of what you were talking about with Guriel, uh, you know, just how quickly this changed with Giolito. I was looking at his game log earlier this morning, prepping for this conversation, and he had a couple of good starts at the beginning of the, you know the very beginning of the season, late March, early April. But one of them was against Kansas City that he handled pretty well, and then you know he got roughed up in another start or two. The, the walk strikeouts numbers were good but he really turned on a dime when he went on the DL with a strained hamstring for two weeks at the end of April when he came off the DL just like gangbusters and you know just to see that kind of a pivot after just like a two-week vacation where like like I said there were some hints that things were going right in the very early season skills but you know the, the light bulb just switched on when he came off the DL after two weeks to rest his hamstring which I can't remember seeing someone just sort of you know reboot themselves that quickly after uh you know after a quick DL vacation like that just uh just a stunning girl Well, what's interesting about that, I don't know if you guys saw this story, but uh, uh, Giolito gave a lot of the credit for his resurgence to uh, taking steps to deal with anxiety. He was was suffering from uh, the kind of performance uh, impingements that are caused by being very uh, anxiety focused. And he took up a practice called biofeedback or neurofeedback and uh, he, he practiced it and he swears by it. And he said he's more relaxed out there. He's more confident out there and he's much better able to let bad events go by and, and just focus on the next thing that happens rather than dwelling. Uh, I wonder if this is, we talked about uh, Verlander's sleep. I wonder if uh, neurofeedback and the ability to, to manage your anxiety and manage bad events happening is another possible place that teams can look to improve performance by all athletes. I think it can, but I think, you know, back to being the numbers nerd, the he has also done things to change his 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 you know, repertoire etc and again the way that the uh, the ball feeds into the launch swing it might be he's better able to make these changes or have the mindset to make these changes because of the calmer nerves etc so the two could be intertwined in that manner guys this has been fantastic so far we'll take a little break ray uh, do you want to stand by absolutely todd take a little breather and we'll come back in a couple of minutes Sure. 
Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. They'll be back a little later in the show with the rest of our roundtable, and when we come back, it'll be our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In a free rotisserie gaming column, analyst Matt Cedarholm writes about some speculative second-half saves leaders. In the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scouting analyst Chris Blessing puts his eyes on three Cleveland prospects, including their number six guy, outfielder George Valera. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brant Chesser looks at five American League players, including Masahiro Tanaka and Justin Smoke. And in the speculator column, columnist Ryan Bloomfield makes some informed speculations on how the trade chips might fall at this year's deadline, and which players are poised to step up and benefit. And those are just four articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, as well as daily dashboards and pitcher matchups tools, leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, expert content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading us off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Philadelphia third baseman Alec Bohm. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Although 2019 represents Philadelphia Phillies third baseman Alec Bohm's first full professional season of the Miners, could it also be his last? And we mean that the best possible way. Drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies with the third overall pick in 2018, 22-year-old Alec Bohm is moving quickly through the Miners. In fact, his exit velocity per level appears to be off the charts. In 2019, Alec Bohm exited the single-A South Atlantic League in only 22 games after batting 367 with three home runs. Next, he exited the Class A Advanced Florida State League after 40 games and a 329 batting average with four home runs, before landing in the AA Eastern League, where he is currently batting 259 with three home runs and only 15 games and 58 at bats. Impressive. Do you see a pattern? Here's one. Through six stops of the minors, Alec Bohm has exited in under 30 games at every stop but one, the Class A Florida State League, where he played 40 games. More importantly, Alec Bohm is the owner of a shiny 325 average in 2019 with 10 fiery home runs. Alec Bohm's scorching start to 2019 also includes a 929 OPS. Still, he's moving too fast to be grounded. 
as statistics, though impressive, represent a relatively small sample size. That's why Alec Bohm, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Still, Alec Bohm did bat 317 in 166 games over three seasons for Wichita State, and his 16 college home runs in 57 games in 2018 is not that far off from his 10 home runs through 77 games and three levels of the minors thus far in 2019. In addition, Alec Bohm has loads of natural strength that leads to plus-plus power grades along with an advanced plate approach that has improved throughout his college career, according to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. A closer look shows that Alec Bohm's advanced plate approach throughout his college career produced an exceptional contact rate of 87%. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com consider batters with contact skill levels of 80% or better to represent baseball's best hitters. Certainly, Alec Bohm's 87% contact rate in college qualifies, as does his 84% contact rate in the minors in 2019. Plus, with his plus-plus power grade, perhaps now is the perfect time to stash... Alec Bohm as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, starting with a double marquee matchup. Saturday's battle pitting Los Angeles right-hander Ross Stripling in Boston to face left-hander Chris Sale, and a Sunday Southpaw Slam with Clayton Kershaw in the cage against David Price. It's a World Series rematch, and here with the lowdowns on the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Teams have reset their rotations coming out of the All-Star break, and as a result, there are several strong weekend pitcher matchups. Of the 15 matchup ratings above 1.0, two belong to pitchers renewing last season's World Series rivalry in Boston's hitter-friendly Fenway Park. The Red Sox send out Chris Sale on Saturday and David Price on Sunday. The Dodgers have Ross Stripling scheduled on Saturday and Clayton Kershaw scheduled on Sunday. The reigning World Series champion Red Sox took it too slowly in spring training and ended April a lackluster 13-17. Since then, they've been winning at a 600 clip, going 37-24 to exit the break eight games over 500 at 49-41, and two games out of the second wildcard slot. No team has scored more runs than the Red Sox this season, and their run differential is 58, sixth in the American League. Against teams over 500, though, the Bostonians have lost eight games more than they've won. And at home, the Sox are two games under 500, ranking 24th. The Dodgers have the Majors' best record and are the only team to reach 60 wins so far. On the road, the Los Angelinos are a National League's second best three games over 500, and against teams over 500, they are the National League's best nine games over 500. Give LA more than a slight edge. 30 year old Southpaw Chris Sale was on the mound for the Red Sox when they finished off the Dodgers in last year's World Series, but has yet to post a win at home this season and was left off the All Star team for the first time in eight years. Now, with 15 games started after opening the season with a pair of peak U.S. disasters, Sale reeled off five peak U.S. dominance and ten peak U.S. decents before suffering a third peak U.S. disaster in his final start before the break. 
Sale has said he's not pitching up to par this season, but don't tell that to BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Buyer's Guide columnist Stephen Nickrand. In June, Nickrand noted that Sale was the most skilled starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. In May, he called Sale's skills otherworldly. And in April, Nickrand described Sale's stats as firmly elite. No wonder Sale earned a matchup rating of 248 for Saturday's start. 29-year-old right-hander Ross Stripling opposes Sale for L.A. on Saturday, and he comes in with a matchup rating of 049. That's a matchup rating differential of 199 in favor of Sale. But with the Dodgers' big edge at the team level, can Stripling still deliver the goods for his fantasy owners? It would appear not. Each of the four component matchup ratings strongly favor Sale. For strikeouts, Sale has a 376 to Stripling's 048. For ERA, Sale's advantage is 224 to 109. For whip, sale top stripling 307 to 149. And for win probability, sale has an 085 to stripling's minus 111. After a breakout season in 2018, stripling is struggling to find his groove in 2019. Beginning the year in the rotation, stripling allowed 10 earned runs in 34 innings pitched, featuring two PQS dominant fours. He was sent to the bullpen for the two months Rich Hill was healthy, tossing nine scoreless outings and allowing earned runs in five. When Hill had another injury, Stripling stepped in for three starts prior to the All-Star break, but only totaled 12 innings pitched and allowed nine earned runs. Despite a career-best first pitch strike rate of 71%, Stripling is suffering from a career-worst control rate of 2.8 walks per nine. He still looks a little too shaky to count on. The tables are turned in a battle of left-handers on Sunday when LA's 31-year-old Clayton Kershaw gets a matchup rating of 167 and Boston's David Price has a matchup rating of 030. In his 2019 Red Sox midseason report, Boston beat writer Cameron Beal called David Price the best pitcher in a disappointing Boston rotation, concluding that although he may not have the accolades of Smale, Price has saved the Red Sox from sinking completely. Pretty high praise for the 33-year-old in his 11th season as a starter. Price is posting a career-best dominance rate of 10.3 strikeouts per nine, supported by a career second-bests in first-pitch strike rate of 67% and swinging strike rate of 12%, despite a career-low average fastball velocity of 92, 3.5 miles per hour below his career high of 95.5. In 16 games started, Price has five PQS dominant efforts and three PQS disasters. The problem for Price is that outside of an injury-riddled 2017, he's facing fewer batters per game than ever at just 21.2. That leaves him vulnerable to the vagaries of his bullpen, which is less than stellar. Boston looks likely to add not only another starter, but after already blowing 20 saves this season, they may need a reliever beyond already-anointed closer Nate Eovaldi, who's due back from elbow surgery just before the July 31 single trade deadline. Kershaw should be able to lean on a matchup rating differential of 137 in his favor. Like Price, Kershaw is showing a career-low average fastball velocity of 90.2, 3.8 miles per hour slower than his career-high rookie year 94. But he's pumping in first-pitch strikes at a career-best rate of 70% and getting swinging strikes at a career-third-best rate of 13%. Kershaw's control rate of 1.5 walks per nine is also a career third best, though his dominance rate of 8.3 strikeouts per nine is a career worst. In 15 games started, Kershaw has eight PQS dominant efforts and only one PQS disaster. His BPV is still a sterling 139, and he should come out on top Sunday. There are no teams facing two starters with matchup ratings below one this weekend, but there is a doubleheader on Saturday in hitter-friendly Camden Yards. If you have some O's and visiting Tampa Bay Rays hitters, they may help you win the week with their extra game.
To recap our reprise of last season's World Series, sales should prevail on Saturday. But Stripling could get enough run support to surprise. Price will likely suffer at the hands of his bullpen on Sunday, paving the way for Kershaw to come out on top. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about some players who aren't widely owned, but perhaps should be, and who are widely owned, but probably shouldn't. By the time you hear this, what we sometimes call the second half of the baseball season will have gotten underway with a 5 nothing win by the feisty Texas Rangers over their powerhouse rival the Astros. But that really wasn't the start of the second half. The season was about 55% complete when the All-Star break began. Nonetheless, the break creates a natural break that I like to use to compare broad ownership lists with HQ projected value. The idea is to find players who project to some useful value in the rest of the season, but who aren't on a lot of rosters and therefore might be available. And on the flip side, look for players who are rostered, but who project to negative value and probably should be dropped. I'm using the percentage-owned list from the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, an NFBC-style experts league of leagues, with 315 owners in 23 different leagues. In general, most owners are pretty good at identifying and rostering the most worthy players, and this massive league of leagues is no exception. Of the 210 top hitters by HQ's projected dollar value for the rest of the season, 203 are already on FBI rosters. That's 97% if you're keeping score at home. But opportunity might lie in the players who make up the other 3%, particularly players whose HQ value is projected for more than a buck. After all, not much to choose between Joe Panic, who's a projected $1 player owned by 3%, and Joey Wendell, also projected for one. He's owned by 85%. But they seem interchangeable to me. Three hitters are projected at $3 or more for the rest of the season, but are less than 50% owned. They should interest owners at least enough to take a quick peek to see if they are in their league's free agent pools. Remember that none of these guys is a breakout candidate, but they might be better than the 14th hitter on your roster. They are Chicago Cubs outfielder Albert Amora. He's on just 17% of rosters, but is projected to earn $7 in the second half. Almora is the starting center fielder for the Cubs, and he puts the bat on the ball a lot. He only strikes out 14% of the time. He also offers a little bit of power. He has eight home runs so far this year and projects for six more. Perhaps most importantly, he also offers some batting average upside. His average so far is just 250, but his 27% hit rate should improve, and HQ has him slated to bat 272 the rest of the way in 250 at bats. That could be a useful jolt to your team batting average. By dropping a 250 at bat, say 225 hitter, and adding a 272 guy like Amora, a team on pace for 6,000 at bats would gain about 4.4 batting average points, going from, say, 250 to 254.4. That bump in batting average almost always gained points in the category. Cleveland outfielder Tyler Naquin is projected for $5. He's owned by 22%. Naquin projects to get about 200 at-bats in a crowded but largely unproductive Cleveland outfield. He could offer a little power speed help with seven projected home runs and three projected stolen bases and a serviceable batting average of 261 projected. 
Of course, 261 and 200 at-bats isn't on the same level as Almora for BA support with his 270 over 250 at-bats. But give Naquin a few more at-bats, maybe just a couple more hits, and he could be a help for a team who has a low batting average hitter dragging it down in that category. And the third potential help is Texas first baseman Ronald Guzman, projected for $3 the rest of the season with 49% ownership. Guzman has missed some time this year, but when he's been in the lineup, he offers usable power. He has seven year-to-date home runs and 204 plate appearances, which is a pace for about 21 home runs over 600 plate appearances. His near 30% strikeout rate limits his batting average upside. His projected batting average is just over 250, which won't help much, and his usual eighth spot in the batting order limits his run production. But his rest of season calls for nine projected home runs and 30-ish projected RBIs, which might be playable. He also faces relatively little playing time risk, in that absent a trade, the Rangers have few alternatives at first base, as they find themselves somewhat surprisingly in the wildcard race. Those three players should be on more rosters, but there are also players who should be on fewer rosters. Fifteen hitters are more than 75% rostered despite projected dollar values under minus five bucks. Those are hitters who will actually harm their teams. Now, nine of the 15 are catchers, and we can ignore them because, well, catchers, but six are position players. Jesus Aguilar is a minus $6 projection who's 95% owned. Nate Lowe is minus 7 and 98% owned. Jurickson Profar, 7 and 92%. Delino DeShields, minus 10 and 86%. Clint Frazier, minus 11 and 83%. And Eric Sogard, minus $19 and 80% owned. Let me quickly go through two of these guys. One of them I think probably should be kept, and one who almost certainly shouldn't. I think we should keep Milwaukee first baseman Jesus Aguilar. He had an eye-opening 2018. He's gone quickly from a $22 breakout in that year to just $4 this year. But it's hard to see why. His plate discipline metrics look really good. His walk rate is up, his strikeout rate is down, he's swinging at fewer balls out of the zone and more balls in the zone and making more contact at all of them. His average exit velocity of 90 miles an hour is the same as last year, although his launch angle has dropped just a bit, resulting in a higher ground ball rate at the expense of his line drives and fly balls, and his barrel rate is down to 8.6% from 11.4 last year, which means he's now keeping company with the Jackie Bradley Juniors and Curtis Grandersons of the world. The new ground ball tilt has hammered his hit rate as well. It's down to around 26% from over 30 the last couple of seasons. As well, he's seeing some pull side infield shifts, against which he's 1 for 12. With all of this going on, it's little wonder his batting average has taken a 50% nosedive. So this might be a sell-high opportunity despite the projected minus $5 line that has Aguilar scraping together fewer than 100 at-bats with 6 homers, 26 RBIs, and a 250 ish projected batting average. But Aguilar's 95% ownership says the fantasy community isn't giving up yet, and he did have a really good stretch to close the first half, going 6-for-10 in July so far with 3 homers, 6 RBIs, and an 1872 OPS. Yes, it's part of natural variability, but this guy has shown some good sock in years past. Don't be too hasty. And finally, what the heck is going on with Toronto utility player Eric Sogard? He's hitting 294. His career before this year, 238. And his nine home runs prorates to 21 home runs over 600 plate appearances when his career record up till this year was four. 
Sogar does have some markers on his side. He's generating 45% fly balls this season after a career in the mid-30s in that department. He does draw some walks around 10% and he does make contact around 84. It's possible that he's made a sustainable gain via a Tommy LaStella-style launch angle adjustment that has taken full advantage of the Rawlings Titleist baseballs and it's possible that projection systems just have been slow to catch up. But Sogard's StatCast metrics say his batted ball profile is among the worst in Major League Baseball. He's the 49th lowest hitter among hitters with 50 batted balls in average exit velocity and 16th lowest in hard hit rate. Those are balls hit over 95 miles an hour. To make the case, La Stella added 10 points of hard hit percentage this year, while Sogard's hard hit rate is actually down from last year. In the July 9th edition of Facts and Flukes at BaseballHQ.com, analyst Brent Chesser summed up Sogard's 2019 as more fluke than fact. And that's an analysis with which I heartily agree. In addition to obvious performance risk, there's also a strong possibility that Toronto will continue its youth movement, potentially crowding out the 33-year-old journeyman. He's played 37 games at second, which now looks like the home of Cavan Biggio. Six games at third... They got a guy named Vlad Guerrero Jr. Four games at short where Freddie Galvis has been really good and Bo Bichette has been preparing in AAA. And Sogard has a few games in the outfield where he's unlikely to push past newly extended Grandel Grichuk, newly re-arrived Lourdes Gurriel, and potential slugger Teoscar Hernandez. I know no projection system is infallible, and we shouldn't make roster decisions with only projections in mind. But Sogard is literally the third lowest projected rest-of-season hitter in the entire HQ list. Projected minus 19 bucks, two homers, 16 RBIs, a stolen base, 18 runs scored, and a 184 batting average. The 80% of owners who have Eric Sogard on their rosters have likely enjoyed this ride, but the carousel seems more likely to slow down than to keep spinning. And from here, at least, it looks like time to jump off. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Quick break now when we come back, part two of our first half roundtable with Ray and Todd, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about one of my favorite topics international tariffs and trade. Ah, just kidding. I want to bring you up to speed on First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, baseball, expert panel sessions, baseball, workshops, baseball, drafts, baseball, and one other thing. Oh yeah, baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, as well as guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over, and you can approach these experts, hit them up for advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League games. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. Or more, you know, who am I to stand in the way of hospitality? 
The fun at first pitch always continues in the evenings, and this year there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen and talking baseball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now you'll want to start thinking about this and getting out your calendar pretty quickly because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium takes place earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and it's at a new conference venue, the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho-Cam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference hotel rate, and when I checked it was at least $40 cheaper than the best online prices, and that's in Canadian money. If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously and who likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a long weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to the 13th in Mesa, Arizona. Find out more by going to BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo over there on the right just underneath the HQ radio logo. Check it out. Get in early to take advantage of some early bird discounts. It's First Pitch Arizona. It's October 10th to 13th. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our first half roundtable discussion with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at Baseball HQ, and Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire. Todd, welcome back. It was like I never left. Good to be back with you, PD. Ray, welcome back. You ready to go? Absolutely. Well, in the first segment, we talked about the most valuable and pleasant surprises. We'll turn the tables a bit and go all negative on everybody with the least valuables and the most disappointing. We'll start with the least valuable hitter. I'll go first here. I know this is an injury-related story, and there's... That happens in baseball, but Giancarlo Stanton was projected to be around a $30 hitter. He's been a minus $11 earner so far. That's a huge loss of 38 bucks net value by my system of minus 49 And the real damage here is that he was projected to have 40-plus home runs, which is really important when you draft a guy in today's environment. I think he has one so far this year. And also, we thought that maybe Giancarlo Stanton's days of injury risk were behind him, you guys, and he was an all-but-guaranteed first-rounder because he had put those injury risks behind him. I bet nobody will be thinking that next season. Ray? Yeah, it's... <laughs> I guess we have to reattach the injury-prone the injury prone tag there, right? And, you know, as he gets... You know, what is he... You know, as he gets into his 30s, that's probably going to stay a fix permanently at this point. So I guess the era of a durable Giancarlo Stanton is over. My pick here was uh, Robinson Cano. Uh, certainly a lot's gone wrong with uh, that acquisition for the Mets. I think he is, um, you know, below even the worst case scenario here. And I think he spent a couple of weeks on the DL, but he's been largely healthy. And even... Though he's long in the tooth, was supposed to be a defensive liability, you know, long-term contract albatross for the Mets. I don't think anybody thought he was going to not hit right away. Um, he's hitting 240 with four home runs and 250 at-bats. I mean, that's terrible. Um, and sure, he's, we didn't have the expectations for him. We had of a Stanton, but this is uh, still somebody, somebody we thought was going to be a heck of a lot better than a replacement-level player, and that's what he's been. 
Guys, do you think we need to apply some kind of uh, New York Mets curse on established players? Everybody they pick up seems to just go terribly wrong right away, and Cano, just the latest example, uh, some exceptions, of course, uh, including Pete Alonso, but he's not an established player. Todd, who's your least valuable hitter for the first half? Yeah, I don't know if it's outside the box, but and maybe this is a shame on us, us being the industry uh, information disseminators and even the people that follow them, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna put the the kibosh on Garrett Hampson, and perhaps there was too much helium, there was too much expectations coming into the season, but especially in stolen bases, which we uh, we could talk about in in general as a as a topic about how they're even down further than we thought and how they're affecting fantasy. Uh, if you picked up Hampson as your as one of your main stolen base contributors. Man, you are you are in the you are in a in behind the eight ball even worse than expected, and this he's given he was given a couple of chances. It's not as if it was an injury or wasn't given a proper chance. Hampson was given some chances early and then given a couple of chances later on in the first half, and just it just failed to take advantage. And even getting on base in Coors Field, it's a better field for hits than it is for homers. So again, part of it could be. Uh, expectations un- unwarranted expectations but they were there and they were pretty universal and he just failed to come through so i'm going to uh, i'm going to call garrett hampson my least valuable hitter cuz what he's done to your team as a whole having to make up stolen bases and already having to make up power cuz of hampson himself it's just putting that team any team that you drafted him on a lot of work to do to make it back moving on to the mound uh, let's start with you ray who's your least valuable pitcher for the first half Oh, let's pile on the Mets some more. I'm going to go with Noah Syndergaard. He's just been brutal. You know, the stuff is there. You know, this is another case where, you know, he's supposedly been healthy again. You know, I think he got a you know a quick DL vacation in there at one point, but, you know, nothing serious. And he's been, um, you know, he's been healthy. He's been taking the ball. He's just been getting racked. And that's not supposed to happen to this guy. So if you got, you know, if you drafted him and, you know, the second round or paid $29 for him or whatever it is. And I told you at the All-Star break, you'd have 106 innings from him. You'd probably be doing a party. Yeah, but, you know, he's got a 468 ERA, a 128 whip, a record of 6-4. and four. I mean, this is brutal. Uh, you know, I he's just royally screwed up at this point and not for health reasons. It's, uh, it's completely mystifying. Todd? Yeah, Syndergaard's interesting because I took a look at him and I see no reason why we can't expect a bounce back unless it's something that we can't measure or something in the head. That's that's it's just it's it's baffling with uh with Syndergaard there. I'm going to choose and maybe again, maybe this is uh more of a personal personal scenario, but I expected more out of Eduardo Rodriguez, Red Sox Southpaw, and I think some of it had to do the way the Red Sox slow played spring training. But I expected more from him, and I, to be honest, it, it's I, I think we're going to get more from him. Uh, contrary to what the league is doing in general, shying away from the third time through and using a reliever earlier and not even setting your pitcher out or completely avoiding the third time through against the best hitters using the opener follower, Alex Cora is, like, this is his whipping boy. He He's trying to get Rodriguez to be a third time through guy. So maybe this is an unfair label, but and, it, and it's beginning to come to fruition. It, we're getting, beginning to see 
the uh, the, the the fruits of the labor. But unfortunately, it, it was a, you know, a learning curve, and you got to absorb those stats on your on your roster. But maybe it was because my expectations for Rodriguez were so high. I'm disappointed he's not doing better, but he's not going to come up. Uh, actually, maybe you know what? He is going to come up again for me, so I'll save the rest. Yeah, I've got comments on him later too, Todd. We'll talk more. <laughs> Excellent. My least valuable pitcher is, again, injury-related. I paid pretty handsomely in the HQ Writers League for Corey Kluber of Cleveland. Uh, I paid $33, and I have a minus 13 to show for it. And I understand that the injury was a fluke. He got hit by a line drive. But at the time that he had got hit by that line drive, he was uh, at a 580 ERA, a 165 whip. It might even have been a blessing that he was off my team, except, of course, you can't replace a $33 pitcher out of the free agent pool. I know he's supposed to be back in August, and I know I'm going to have to activate him, but I don't know what Corey Kluber can do to offset what has been a very unvaluable season so far. Uh, Moving along, let's go to our disappointments. Not necessarily value-related, just guys who have disappointed you, maybe on your own teams. Uh, Todd, who's your biggest disappointment as a hitter in the first half uh i gotta go with paul goldschmidt and i know he was moving to a new team and our friends glenn colton and rick wolf have a have a a smart system and that's part of one of the things they do not do regardless of the player is they do not invest in a player of any quality when they're moving to a new team there's too much of a of a transition period and it's anecdotal it works for them it doesn't always work for me, and I, I, ex- I expected more out of Paul Goldschmidt, and it's not just that he had a poor first half and turned it on in the second half last year and expected it to do the same. He's just it's, he, he's not doing anything close to what he expected, not running, and yeah, I think he's an obvious he'll have a better second half, but only on reputation. I don't know what to point to. Well, this has been unlucky, or the hit rate, or the this, whether that, the other. I mean, there's there's signs, but I don't know exactly what's going on there, and that concerns me a bit. Well, one thing I think you can point to with Paul Goldschmidt in that regard is uh, he is hitting the ball hard more often than ever before in his career, so that that's something. But, uh, yeah, this looks like a, a very weird situation with Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, my personal whipping boy this year. I have Jose Ramirez on two different teams, and uh, his stolen bases are ahead of pace, and that's great. That's providing some value but certainly nowhere near the 40 plus dollars I spent in two different leagues his counting stats are way off uh, home runs RBIs and runs his batting average is barely over 200 although his on base percentage I play on base leagues which is a little more easy to swallow and an earlier conversation we were having got me thinking about something could it be the fact that Jose Ramirez is a new dad uh, he's he had a small child in the house and his wife was pregnant uh, during this off season and into the season is is that a possibility that, that maybe somebody needs to look at, right? I mean, maybe. Um, you know, he's actually, you know, I, I was looking at him not too long ago. He's actually, you know, in some sense has picked it up a little bit lately. Things seem to be getting a little bit better there. Um, it, he still looks to be like somebody who's completely wrapped around the axles mentally, Um I mean, is sleep deprivation a cause for him to not be thinking clearly or to, you know, be pressing or, you know, maybe he's not sleeping because he's not hitting. We'll never know the chicken or the egg there, right? But, um, you know, his contact rate is way up over the last, uh, you know, his contact rate's been fine all spring, but, you know, it took a little while for that to come back. He's walking more. He had a two-homer game last week. Uh, I'm relatively optimistic about him for the second half. I 
you know, suffered through him in a couple of leagues in the first first half. And, you know, I am equal parts angry and disappointed and yet still retaining some optimism for a decent second half recovery here. So I guess I'm uh, I'm straddling the line here, I guess. Well, when it comes to the chicken and the egg of uh, of sleep and hitting, uh, you've had twin baby girls. I've had two separate girls uh, that were babies, and uh, hitting had nothing to do with me not sleeping. <laughs> that way, <laughs> true, true. Hey, I had yeah, one of my was, best years, best seasons ever, the the year my girls were born. So uh, you know, I'm not yeah. sympathetic to this argument. Yeah, over on the slow pitch team, just crushing it. But the yeah, the. Uh, the the sleep situation I, I we we can joke about it but you know these are things that we don't give enough credit to these guys having lives outside of the ballpark and while i was thinking about it i thought you know when uh, in in uh, the sort of Latin American culture, it's not uncommon for a lot of in-laws to show up at your house when the new baby is born. And uh, I've had in-laws in my house and, uh, and my parents, uh, in my wife's in-laws in our house. And sometimes that's a stressor. You know, you got to uh, happen to have a nagging mother-in-law. Goodness gracious, that, that can be a problem. Uh, Ray, who's your, who's your disappointing hitter? I w- it was Ramirez. So, uh, you know, we sort of covered that. I'm, you know, I, I do think there's some, you know, we might be seeing the very tip of the iceberg in terms of recovery here. Uh, so I'm not inclined to sell him for 40 cents on the dollar or anything like that. But but boy, has it been tough to live through for the first half. Yeah, it really was. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've been getting a lot of low ball offers too, you know, to five cents for for for. 25 cents kind of things and do you want yeah i'm not interested in that at all i'd rather you know hold out for the uh, so some of that's team context i'm a i've got him on a team that's you know second division so any chance i have probably involves you know ramirez snapping right back into first round player form 20 20 30 cents on a dollar does me no good yeah, I'm with you. I got to ride him to the end, especially in an only league. As I said before, you're just not going to get anything out of the free agent pool or in in trade that's going to offset this huge loss. So he has to he has to offset it himself in the second half. And I'm confident, I'm optimistic, but I'm not at all certain. Uh, moving along, uh, disappointing pitchers. I'll start with another guy I rostered, Zach Wheeler, another Met. Uh, I have him on one team this season. I thought he might be able to build on what looked like a 2018 breakout. He had a 330 ERA, 110 whip, something around there. Uh, instead, 469, 128, he's been mediocre. Uh, I'm still confident he can be really good. And in fact, I am targeting him in leagues where I don't have him. His K rate is up. His walk rate's down a little bit. Fastball velocity's up by a full mile an hour. He's getting more out of his own swings. I think 33% hit rate, 66% strand rate have undermined his decimals. We could maybe expect some regression in those two factors. And uh, an elevated 1.2 home run per nine uh, has been a component of strand rate spike. He's got a new pitch uh, that he's worked on since last year, a split finger. He's got a lot of things going right. So he's been disappointing so far, but here again is a guy I'm not going to give up on. Ray, who's your disappointment? Uh, you know, p- pivoting a little bit, we haven't talked about uh, too many relievers, if, a- if any at all here, but uh, I'm going to throw Jose Leclerc on the fire here. Uh, just, you know, in the, you know, the, this, this uh, like Todd said earlier, this might be a, a shame on us case, but I was pretty optimistic about him despite the short track record coming into the season as a closer. And, you know, it had been relatively short period of time, half a season or so, that he'd solved his control problems. But I thought, you know, even with those caveats, he was a relative 
safe harbor and you know for saves on that team even and then there weren't that many safe harbors this preseason so I ended up with you know a decent chunk of him and obviously that completely blew up in my face uh so part shame on me part uh disappointment in Jose Leclerc and and myself for not sniffing that out earlier I guess I wish I had a lot more Alex Colibay and a lot less Jose Leclerc how's that well you could have had Blake Trinan I wasn't paying that much oh that hurts Todd, who's your disappointing pitcher? Uh, Trinan Hurts. I have him my AL, my my tanking AL Labor team. And thanks to our friend Steve Gardner for posting the standings. And my team is so bad, I'm surprised it even showed up on the on the tweet. But anyway, we'll have a second half to try to get that better. This this is weird. In a couple other instances, I talked about players that were kind of disappointing to me. This is a player that's more disappointing to the masses, and I honestly wasn't so high on. And that's Herman Marquez. And I heard all sorts of narratives. Well, at least I'll get the strikeouts. This, that, you know, I can play him on the road. And the the thing with Marquez, and he's got strikeouts, but he also has 125 innings. It's it's just a huge total of innings, so the strikeouts are there. But his strikeout rate is down compared to last year. He should have 140, 150 relative to last year's K percent. It's just the volumes there. But come with the volume it makes the, the subpar ratios that much more damaging. So, sure, you're getting the strikeouts you expected, but your ratios are even worse. And I just, I, to me, he, I didn't, I wasn't expecting a lot because of Coors Field. Coors Field was undefeated, and it remains undefeated, but I did expect a little bit more out of Marquez, and those who chose to put him on their roster as a second or third starting pitcher expected even more. So, I don't know. I just... uh I think that he's he again. I believe in the roster construction sort of thing, and if you got Marquez because of strikeouts, and I guess he's I guess the argument is well, he's giving me the strikeouts, so maybe it's a weak argument on my end. But I think you should be getting more strikeouts relative to the innings. Yeah, it's like that old story about I needed power, so I took you know uh, in a batting average league in the past Joey Gallo and took the two ten or Adam Dunn and took the two oh five or whatever, and sometimes as much as you get the benefit of one category you can't overlook the the impact or the harm that's being done in the other categories guys before we get to boons and banes i'm curious what you thought was the biggest story for the first half in fantasy baseball we talked earlier about uh, regular baseball uh ray what was your biggest story as far as fantasy baseball was concerned I mean, it's still the ball, right? But we, I assume we want to talk about something else. So uh, the other topic I was going to throw out here is that I think we have you know, one of the things we've talked about in, in on the show here a lot before is the uh, the abysmal state of the catching pool, and I think we've bounced off the floor there. There are you know a bunch of you know we don't have top end catchers other than Gary Sanchez, but we have a lot more respectable catchers and the good news is a bunch of them are young and I think the uh, you know we've seen the worst of the catching pool and I think the uh, the recovery we're seeing in the first half this year is likely to stick a little bit going forward it's still you know still a scarce position still sometimes painful to roster but there are at least more options out there that you don't have to hold your nose to roster there are this year. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got Mitch Garver again almost by accident in Tout Wars AL, and uh, there's lots of good p- uh, catchers, and Danny Jansen of the Blue Jays has really turned it on all of a sudden uh, just before the break. Todd, what, what's your big fantasy baseball story from the first half? Well, to, to, 
to piggyback on the catchers, the majority of them are in the American League. National League only, you're still in trouble. But the majority of these bounce backs, and we're, we're kind of at, we're back to where we were before the pool was terrible. There are some mid-range options again. The lower end of the pool is still, te- still terrible. I, uh, as far as my story, I'm, I'm flipping between two different stories. Uh, I think we, we, I've talked about how stolen bases, I talked about it on, on regular HQ radio, how stolen bases are down and how it affects categories. So we'll leave that one uh, uh, on the back burner. And we, Patrick, we've talked about this for the past couple of years, and I think it's just continuing to grow. And that's the, the, the influence, the effect of, of the rookies earlier and earlier and earlier every season. Teams putting less uh, credence or, or signing players earlier to the to the contract, the six-year deals that get them out of arbitration, et cetera. We have to, Ray, I think, you know, I don't know what we have to do as far as go back and look at MLEs and, and everything else, but I think we need to really think about how we're going to project some of these youngsters. They're outperforming expectations, and I'm not so sure it's because we, we might need to do a better job on expectations, and now there's more data. There's minor league, you know, hard hit data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think we can't, I don't know we can just take the MLEs anymore and do a translation, and that's what the player's going to do. I think we need to take the next step and, and try to be a little more granular projecting some of the, you know, Fernando Tatis, you know, the, the next year's players of that ilk. Now, sure, the, the counter is, well, Vlad Guerrero's not doing what we expected, so maybe I'm just cherry-picking. But even if it turns out we have to do nothing, I think we need to investigate how we're going to project rookies a little more because I don't know we can just take MLEs on the surface and, okay, that's what my engine says, bing, bang, boom. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I haven't looked at this yet, but it's something I'm looking forward to diving into in the offseason. Clearly something in the in your take the MLE bing, bang, boom process has been broken for the last few years, and we, ha- we haven't been capturing these guys well enough. My, my pet theory that I want to look at this offseason is I think the disconnect may very well have been the difference in the ball between the minors and the majors, and we leveled Maybe. that out this year. They're using the they're using the same ball now, so I'm I'm anxious to see what MLEs look like at the end of this minor league season for the guys that we're going to be pr- potentially looking at as the 2020 arrivals because we're going to have a very different data point in the minor league stats because we're going to see what they're doing with the ball that they're going to be playing with when they get up here. And I think the MLEs are going to look very different. That might solve some of the problem. Perhaps. I also think there is something with the the, the inherent bias with MLEs that they're sort of global, but only certain players are making it to the majors and we're using global MLEs for them. I think the disparity between the the, 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 the top end minor leaguer and the player contributing to MLEs, I don't, I think there, it may be different, but I agree with the, uh, with the ball. That's interesting. I think, I don't think we talk about that enough. If the minor leagues are using the same ball as the American, as, as the American, as the, as MLB is now. So whether, if, if maybe we change our weights, our, 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 our you know, weighted average, and put more of a credence to current seasons, we may, have, may even have to do that for everybody if we think the ball's going to be the same. Absolutely. And guys, uh, as projectors and guys who have to think about this, there's also an issue, isn't there, of the real wide range of talent levels and do, are you going to have to start thinking about making adjustments rather than as Todd said it's a global adjustment you hit uh, you know 21 home runs in 500 at bats at in this league in this park and and therefore your projection is going to be 17 home runs in the major leagues in that park but 
there's a huge range of variation caused by the talent levels of the players. And, and do you, are we going to have to figure out some way of being super granular about looking at the uh, Fernando Tatises of the world and saying his MLE projected uh, major league home runs based on minor leagues is just going to be higher than most other players because he's just a better player? Yeah, I mean, the other aspect of it is, you know, you, you, I, I know it wasn't your main point, but you skimmed there the idea that like, oh, we got 500 bats at this level and 500 bats at that level. And therefore, in the majors, it's going to be this player. These minor leaguers aren't getting 500 at bats at a level anymore. They're flying through the system on their way up. I mean, I'm looking at Tatis and the minors now. He, he's, he had um, 400 at bats in double A and did not play in triple A. So that's, you know, two thirds of a, of a single season of, you know, if double and triple A stats are the ones that you can, you know, more reliably derive MLEs from, there's only two thirds of a sample size there to, to work with. We, we don't have a thousand at bats in the high minors to give us a good idea of what this guy's going to be. So, you know, th- that's another issue on top of the ball and everything else and the talent disparity. And, the, you know, then if you got 400 at bats, what ballpark or ballparks were, 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 were you in? How much of that was in the PCL versus the Eastern League or wherever? I mean, there's, you know, there, there, there's a, there were a lot of variables, a lot of le- le- levers to pull here, a lot of noise to be flushed out of these systems. And I imagine the forecasting might improve as we get more and more access to batted ball data, launch angle data, exit velocity data, yep. those kinds of things at the minor league level because those kind of things don't get fooled as much as, as our uh, estimators of, well, if you hit this many home runs in the minor leagues, you're going to hit that many in the major leagues, and it's some kind of linear relationship when, in fact, we know it isn't. Uh, this is going to be a, a bit of a a bit of a repetitive thing, but my uh, fantasy baseball story of the first half was also the uh, earlier call ups of these impact prospects. Uh, you mentioned Tatis, we mentioned Guerrero, but if you think about it, we had Oscar Mercado got called up and did well right away. Uh, Craig Biggio got called up by the uh, Blue Jays well ahead of when we thought that that might happen. Houston, which has an absolutely loaded lineup, just went and got Jordan Alvarez and uh, Jose Urquidy out of the minor leagues to shore up what was already a tremendous team. All of these teams seem to have reason not to call these guys up, and they're doing it anyway. Uh, Tampa Bay just called up McKay, the two-way guy. There's all kinds of financial advantages to not do it, and they're doing it anyway. And I wonder, you guys, does that make you think that the teams are reconsidering the value proposition the length of career, the likelihood of injury, Do I is owning six years of a guy starting three years from now as valuable as we used to think, given the possibility that he flames out three years from now and, and we've wasted all this time with when he was in the minors raking and he comes to the uh, majors and can't? Or are they looking ahead to possibly a change in the CBA, which is another another question I think is pretty interesting. Have you guys thought about that at all? I've thought about it, and I also think any change in the CBA, they'll have some grandfather rule into it. I don't think that you can, uh, you know, we would, if in a fantasy league we would, I think they'd have some kind of a grandfather rule. I think it, part of it is the wanting to win now and the money that you get in the playoffs, counterbalances anything you might save on the other end. I think teams are signing contracts, uh, signing a lot of these younger players to these contracts, buying them out of their RBers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a there's a lot of factors rolling in, and the fact is that they're, you know, they are cheaper players right now, and the, the whole salary cap and luxury tax, et cetera. I think it all fits in. This is the way it should be, and I I do think there will be a change in the CBA so that you don't have to worry about 
uh, time, uh, playing time, service time, etc. But I'm not convinced. I'm not 100% sure that those are making you know that you know on Red Sox Michael Chavez. Oh, I'm going to elevate him because they're going to change the rule and I'm going to be great. You know, I, I think that he may still fit into the old service time rule and maybe anybody called up after name the date is subject to the to the rule change. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ, Todd Zola from Rotowire and ESPN and Masters Ball. Uh, guys, I always like to ask our experts to give us their boons and banes for the rest of the season. Seems like an ideal time to do that. I'll step aside and let the experts take over here. Uh, let's start in the American League with a hitter. Uh, Ray Murphy, who's your uh, American League hitter who could be a boon in the second half? I'm going to go with Matt Olson. Uh, you know, I, I perhaps prematurely wrote him off after the Hamadi bone injury because that so typically saps a player's power for the rest of the season, even when they come back. But I was just looking, and I think he's had 12 home runs in the last month, so he's pretty clearly answered that question. And he's someone that you know was not really on a lot of my radar screens, but now all of a sudden looks like there's you know just based on his history and the fact that he's demonstrated health, there's a very likely a you know 20 home run second half waiting there. Todd, who's your uh, AL hitter Boone for the second half? Yeah, again, it might you know call call it a homer pick. I don't know, but I think we're gonna, I think we're going to see some things from JD Martinez down the stretch. It's not as if he's been terrible. He's been disappointing though, and you can point to the metrics and he should have been better. This, that, the other thing. Well, he hasn't been, but I also think there's still room for improvement. So maybe this this week off or close to a week off by the time he gets back. Um, help a little bit i know the, the all-star game etc but hopefully the, the less work uh will help him out the back issues etc i think we're going to see the old jd down the stretch the one that terrorizes uh, al east and american league pitching because fenway park i mean there's not a whole lot of parks that that aren't built for jd martinez but fenway park is built for jd martinez at least in terms of batting average so i expect a big bounce back in that area and i think it'll just it'll just it'll come down It'll come down to the Red Sox bullpen. I think the offense will be there. Over to the National League, Ray, who's a boon hitter for you in the senior circuit? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, first-half disappointment, Jesus Aguiar. Uh, as bad as he was, he lost his job. You know, Eric Thames has been stealing some uh, at-bats from him and been fairly productive. But, you know, in part-time work over the last month or so, Aguiar's looked pretty good. Uh, you know, the contact's coming back. He's hit four home runs in a you know, very small sample size over the last month. I... Wouldn't be surprised to see him take his job back and get locked, get locked in again in the second half. Todd? You know, I'm going to give myself a failing grade on the biggest disappointment hitter going with Paul Goldschmidt. And I, uh, I think, Patrick, you were the one that pointed out that he is hitting the ball hard. He is my bounce-back hitter in the NL. I kind of said I don't know exactly what to hang my hat on. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, you hang on hack, hang on hat, fat on the hack. Hang your hat. You see, I'm all flustered because I messed up. You hang your hat on the fact that Goldie is hitting the ball hard. It will come through. I'm not expecting the resurgence like he had last year, but I don't, you know, talking about selling on the, you know, 70 cents in the dollar, etc. I'm expecting Paul Goldschmidt to have a normal, I'm not going to say accelerated, but a normal second half. Over to the mound we go back to Ray for an American League pitcher who could be a boon in the second half yeah we skimmed Eduardo Rodriguez before and this is where I had him up for discussion uh you know Todd was talking about how Cora's been trying to make him a third time through the order guy and frankly if I were managing the Boston bullpen I'd try to make Eduardo Rodriguez a third time through the (laughs) through the order guy too um but you know I think maybe he's taken some 
lumps that he didn't deserve, uh, you know, in some cases there. He's never been efficient. So the problem with him is, you know, he's often at, you know, 100 pitches in the uh, as he goes back out for the sixth inning or whatever. But, uh, you know, he's got a 465 ERA in the first half, but it was actual, his uh, expected ERA for that body of work was four. So there's more than a half a run to be gained there. And I, I've always liked his skill set. I think he's demonstrating durability. And, you know, the last step is to sort of pick up a little more consistency there. I think he's very much capable of that. And I'm looking forward to a uh, pretty big second half from him. Todd, who's your American League pitcher, Boone? Can we can we just agree that that Blake Snell is the obvious choice, and that that's why we didn't talk about him? His you know expected ERA is in line with last year's, and et cetera. So that's why we didn't talk about him. But this just saves us all the uh, the Twitter commentary. But um, I'll give you Michael Pineda as a guy who I think the underlying metrics should be better. Great team context. I'm not talking about a staff ace, but I think he should have a better season. I like the team context. Strikeouts should go up a little bit. And in the National League, Ray, who's a pitcher for you? Uh, one more guy who already talked about. I'm going to throw uh, German Marquez here. Um, I think, despite what Todd was saying earlier, I don't think um, Coors Field alone explains the regression this year. Sure, his strikeout rate is down a little bit, but some of that was also it was also a lot worse in April and has been ticking up lately. He's back to he's he's back over nine for the last month, uh, which is you know. Not all that remarkable these days, but still better than where he was and closer to the, you know, 10 plus he had last year. Uh, I, you know, if I'm looking at his metrics, I don't see a heck of a lot of difference other than the strikeouts. Strand rate is down, but that's without, um, you know, really getting punished by, he's one guy who's not getting punched by home runs more than he was last year. So that doesn't explain the strand rate dip. I think there's, uh, you know, it might only be an incremental improvement. I'm not saying he's going to get back to, you know, hanging up a half season under three like he did in the second half of last year. But I certainly don't expect to, st- to see him staying in the mid-fours. Todd, a National League pitcher who's a boon? My NL pitcher is, uh, is Jose Quintana. He's already shown some signs of turnaround. One of my big, you know, I've mentioned it a couple times, spin, one of my sort of new new pet studies or ways to look at things on a granular level because we talk about sample size, what's actionable, what's not, and maybe it's descriptive and not predictive, but we can get spin rates on individual starts, on individual outings, and the spin rates have improved, or in last two outings have improved for Quintana. If that continues, I expect him to take the last two starts heading into the break and use that as a jumping off point to have a solid second half. And so if if he's someone I may look to acquire, and I actually just did acquire him for Edwin Diaz, so that for for as disappointed as I was for about a week, that that might be looking as a, as a good move. We shall see. But uh, and I'm not not the biggest Quintana fan in, in general, but I do believe that we're going to see a uh, a more productive second half from Quintana. Ray Murphy's Boons, Matt Olson of Oakland, Jesus Aguiar of Milwaukee, Eduardo Rodriguez of Boston, Herman Marquez of Colorado, Todd Zola's Boons, J.D. Martinez of Boston, Paul Goldschmidt of St. Louis, Michael Pineda of Minnesota, and Jose Quintana of the Cubs. Over we go to the Baines. These are guys you think our listeners should be worried about a little bit, at least as we go through the rest of the season. Again, we'll start with you, Ray, an American League hitter who could be a Bane. Uh, talk about Luke Voigt from the Yankees a little bit. Uh, he's supposed to come off the DL in time to start the second half. Um, I was looking at his numbers uh, somewhat randomly earlier in the week, and before he went on the DL, his June was as bizarre as I can remember. Uh, you know, it's a little surprising that he's managed, you know, his power is legitimate, but he's uh, 
you know, hitting 280 this year, which on the surface seems pretty good. But the, uh, you know, his contact rate is below 70%. And what worries me is it's actually been getting worse. In June, his contact rate was down to 62%. So he was striking out 38% of the time. But he hit 333 in June because his hit rate was 51%. That can't last, and if that hit rate corrects down to you know a more historical level, if he's making contact closer to sixty percent than seventy percent, you know he quickly becomes a sub two fifty hitter. The you know the power, like I said, is not about to go away. But um, if you're looking at him and enjoying the two eighty batting average that's been coming with the power, I would not uh, ink that in for the second half. Todd, who's an American League hitter you think is a bane for his owners the second half? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go deep we talk, you know a lot of what we talk about maybe we tend towards mixed leagues because um it's just easier to talk about but dwight smith jr is an al only sort of player if you're in a mixed league you can take a break for a second and the reason i'm bringing him up is in a couple of keeper leagues he's being offered to me as a cheap chemo obviously he was cheap keep coming into the season maybe a buck or two or whatever your reserve or free agent bidding whatever it costs and and on the surface he's a you know one dollar and american league only a great keeper i i think i think he's gonna have a rough second half it's already started and i don't think he has a job next year uh austin hayes has been hurt and is just now getting back into the flow for the the orioles i'm not gonna i'm not gonna mention mark trumbo because i don't think he's part of the future but he may he may be back soon we'll see he like Jed Lowry. I'm not sure what the two of them are doing. I keep uh, keep waiting for them to come back. A couple other hitters like that. But it, you know, for the the deep league special, don't get fooled by Dwight Smith Jr. Uh, soft soft hit rate is huge. Very small, very low hard hit rate. A lot of what he did over the first half was a fluke. Some home runs. I, I haven't looked at the at the chart where they. I think ESPN has a chart that says do they were they barely home runs. I'll be willing to bet that they were. So don't get fooled into thinking Dwight Smith is a player to help you down the stretch in AL only. And even worse, don't deal for him. Don't deal one of your top. Uh, you know, if you're rebuilding, don't deal one of your top chips for a cheap Dwight Smith Jr. In the National League, uh, Ray, who's your Bane hitter? Is it more of a gut feel than anything because the metrics are really nice, but I'm, I own a ton of Jay Bruce, and I am nervous about him for the rest of the season. I sort of feel like I got lucky in the trade to Philadelphia. Obviously, great hitting ballpark, and then you know he was going to be uh, you know part-time, maybe two-thirds time player, but then McCutcheon got hurt, and you know he became an everyday guy, and he's been raking since he got there. His, his metrics look great. This is not a metrics-based argument. I'm just... I, I, I'm nervous that he can't carry the workload that they're asking of him now, and I, 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 I'm fearful he's going to break at some point in the second half. Todd, who's your National League Bane hitter? Yeah, this will not be a popular choice, but I'm going to go with Fernando Tatis Jr. We talked about him a little bit earlier and how what? Oh, Twitter war, Twitter war. Sorry? Twitter war, Twitter war. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I'm nothing, nothing against what he's done, and everything what he's done is fully supported. It's just, again, predictive, not uh, descriptive, not predictive. Can he keep this level? And it's funny, Ray, I don't know if you, I I think you probably noticed it too, is is when a good player is lucky, it's not luck. He's good. You know, and and no, a a good player can be lucky too. And that's what we're seeing with Tatis. We try to make up excuses why somebody's so good. It can't be luck. Well, yes, anybody can get lucky. Luck doesn't discriminate. So I, I think that when some of the happenstance normalizes yeah we're still going to have a very good player but if people are looking to see what Tatis did over the first you know half and not even the first half because he, he came up a little bit late although 
he probably will play about as many games uh, over the second half. You know, double what he has now is probably where he'll end up. I don't think he can double the 14 homers. I don't think he can double the 13 steals. And I certainly don't think he's going to hit 327 the rest of the way. So I just, just warn, and it, I'm not saying he's a bad player. I think we're going to see, there's that word, regression from Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, after the All-Star break. Over to the mound we go. Ray, who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane for the second half? Uh, Mike Biner surprised the heck out of me this year with how good he's been. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I think we know about him is that, you know, he spent some time as a reliever. And even earlier in his career when he was a starter, he wasn't, you know, a quote-unquote workhorse type. So he's carried a big workload in the first half. It gets hot in Texas in July and August. And I, I'm fearful that there's going to be uh, some of that re- regression we were talking about coming there just as uh, Minor gets knocked around in a in a pretty tough pitching environment in the coming coming six to eight weeks in particular. He had 204 innings for the Braves, I think, back in 2013. So it's not completely unheard of but yeah for the last few years nowhere near that uh, todd who's your american league bane pitcher what he said all right i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to use what ray talks about next to try to find no i was on mike minor too and the the i don't want to say saving grace but there's a possibility that the texas heat etc is 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 moot if the rangers move him although why would the rangers move him right now because they are at least you know in the wild card race i'm not going to say the division race but they are in the heat of the heat pardon the pun heat of the wild card race so i am concerned about minor the ball should fly out of the park more there should be some home run regression and i do think that we'll see uh, a bit a bit of a downturn in the second half also, Mike Miner's relatively low cost. If they think he can uh, maintain that kind of level of production, I think he's under contract through 2020, so he's got a full year left at $9 bucks. Sounds like a lot of money to you and me and, and, uh, and regular people, but to a baseball team, eh, not so much. Uh, and there's a new park. There's a new park next year, too. So right. all this Arlington, uh, you know, last year, Globe Life played even friendlier than Coors Field due to the intense heat last summer. Uh, we're not there yet this year, but there's going to be a new park, and we have no idea how it's going to play. But it, don't, but it does mean they're probably going to be trying to you know, win in the first year in the new park, which might mean they keep Minor and Lance Lynn and you yeah. have the, the framework of a rotation in place and not, sure. you know, they, they don't want to you know, deal for prospects now and be rebuilding and miss the ballpark opening window next year. For sure. And finally, Ray, a Bain pitcher in the National League. Uh, you know, we skimmed it again earlier. I'm repeating a bunch here, but, uh, you know, Hung Jin Ryu, uh, I'm very much worried about how many innings he's going to throw you know, the rest of the way. Not necessarily because I fear he's going to get hurt, but more because I fear what the Dodgers are going to do with him. I, I got to believe he's going to get a vacation at some point. He's over 100 innings already. I I'm, I think his career high is somewhere in the 150s. And if they want to save some of those bullets for October, I think he's going to miss more than just a random skip through the rotation here and there. I think there could be uh, you know, some fairly significant time off for him. He had uh, 192 in 2013. Uh, 2013 seems to have been a good year for high innings, uh, uh, but ever since then it's been down, 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 uh, including a, an injury year where he had virtually none. Uh, National League Bain pitcher, Todd? It's going to be Mike Soroka, and again, it's a, well, it's a combination of what Race alluded to as far as uh, playing time, and will will would Atlanta try to roll back on some innings? They certainly have the volume of inventory to do such. They're younger players. You, I know you'd like another uh, another Dallas Keuchel type to help do that, but they still have got some younger pitchers that they could do this with. But again, Soroka is not only very good; 
He's been very lucky over the first half as well, specifically with homers. And he's a ground ball pitcher, which is going to reduce the home runs. But even so, the, the, the number of home runs that he's given up, even factoring in he's an extreme ground ball pitcher, it's been on the lucky side. So between expecting Atlanta to find ways to keep him healthy and fresh, somewhat more fresh down the stretch, although I think you need to stay healthy too, uh, especially, say, I'm in a head-to-head league. I'm a little, you know, Soroka's going to get me there. He's probably, he may have already gotten me there. I don't know how much he's going to help me in the playoffs in September. I think Atlanta's going to play some games with with uh, with workload. Ray Murphy's Baines, Luke Voigt of the Yankees, Jay Bruce of Philadelphia, Mike Miner of Texas, and Hyunjin Ryu of the Dodgers. Todd's Baines, Dwight Smith Jr. of Baltimore, Fernando Tatis Jr. of San Diego, and Mike Soroka of Atlanta. Guys, this has been terrific. Ray, where can people keep up with you? You can follow me on Twitter at RayHQ and uh, appearing uh, many Fridays in the uh, GM's office space at, uh, on the website. Todd, where can people keep up with you? Uh, I am on Twitter again at Todd Zola, T-O-D-D-Z-O-L-A. Uh, you can read my work. Actually, I should, let me, since I haven't, haven't, uh, talked about this, let me use this time to talk about what I'm doing at Creative Sports, where we are re, uh, relaunching Creative Sports. We've got some daily articles there reviewing the previous night's games with a fantasy tilt. I am contributing to the, to the authorship of those and mentoring some others. So if you're looking for another place to go in the morning for a quick, easy, fun read, creativesports2.com i'm taking over the uh the legacy of lar michaels getting keeping that going and lar michaels of course recently inducted posthumously into the hall of fame by the fantasy sports and gaming association an honor well deserved uh guys mm-hmm. thanks very much for helping us out it was terrific i'm sure we'll catch up with both of you throughout the rest of the season and also you can see all three of us right patrick at uh first pitch arizona this october which we uh should have plugged in the where you could find us section but uh We've got a uh, registration deadline. Our best price expires on Monday, July 15th. So head over to Baseball HQ webpage and click on the big First Pitch Arizona logo to uh, check out the in-progress program, the confirmed speaker list, and uh, come join us Columbus Day weekend in Arizona. It's going to be a ball. It's a new date a little earlier this year, Ray. Uh, The reason was that Major League Baseball moved the AFL backwards towards the regular season a little bit. Yeah, I guess they came to their senses that it was not a good idea to have the minor league season wrap up in early September and then send all these kids home for like three weeks for no good reason before they reported to Arizona. So they're pretty much just uh, making the AFL roll right out of the minor leagues, minor league end of season now, which uh, caused us to move our dates forward too. Todd, thanks a million. Talk to you again soon, Patrick. Take care, Ray. Always a pleasure, Todd. Thank you, Petey. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday special edition, Ray Murphy, co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and Todd Zola for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Ray is a great fantasy baseball analyst and writer, and he and Todd are most valuable contributors to the Baseball HQ podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. 
I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.